So what is the impact of AI so far in your business? Does it sometimes fall short of expectations? Is AI another hype? Can AI help accelerate your career? <laughs> and if you're a leader, how do you lead AI projects or manage an AI-enabled workplace? So my brother and I have been looking at these questions for years, so we decided to collaborate and tackle AI from various angles. Hello, San Diego. Uh, hello, Philadelphia. So let's do this. Let's do it. So we both work for AI-focused companies, and we'll have a monthly segment looking at AI trends, tag, business uses, careers. So Arpad, tell us a bit about your background. Well, spent the last two decades in the hardware side, mostly semiconductors, high-tech companies. And if I'm looking at it, I'm also a recovering management consultant and an executive coach. But really what I'm passionate about is how can we unlock value from technology? All right. And, and I have, uh, many of you know, I have 20 plus years in software. I'm a recovering management consultant myself. And half my career, I work with private equity firms on value creation from technology. So all of this will come back here as we um, try to figure out and help you find ways from technology and specifically AI and how to accelerate your projects, your career, your impact at work. To get real about what all these emerging technologies are and, and how to separate hype from reality. We also want to look into how to create value and eliminate waste and how to learn from all of this to improve all of our careers around AI. And some of us, hopefully most of you, will become better leaders leading AI-driven organizations. So let's talk about all of those. So with introductions out of the way, we're going to start with my brother, with what caught your attention in the last few weeks. Oh, as you said, we are both passionate about value creation. And that's the question that I keep getting that, is, it, is AI overhyped? Is AI really creating value? Where does it really show up? And uh, super interesting because where we saw the initial impact and the highest potential is code generation. But there's a lot of open question right now in a legal field about copyright, IP production, how to handle that. There is one area that we see that is still a bright spot. And there's a latest research just came up from Meta. And they saw that when it creating code for testing, 70% of the code that was generated, the Meta team can deploy it right away. And it improved every single aspect of testing. So that's super interesting. And I think it's super actionable. On the flip side, we have seen companies deploying Microsoft Copilot, enabling these large language models. And as Microsoft changed this model, it became even more available actually for everyone. This is where I expected a lot of breakthroughs and a lot of productivity. But right now we see that besides some creative work and small improvements, uh, it really did not deliver the expectations. So that got me thinking about what is really missing. And uh, part of it is probably a skill gap. Part of it is an expectation gap. I think we were very used to that. We interact with software and computers as a one and done solution. Ask a question and get an answer. And that interaction model is just not the right one for these generative tools. 
partially it's a skill gap, which is there is a way to unlock value. I mean, it's amazing when we see the spike of people learning prompt engineering and learning a new interaction model. So we will come back to that, but that is really the, the, the dilemma I see that which tools we can use to create real value. All right. Well, uh, go Microsoft, go Pilot. It seems like every one of us have it, and uh, we use it. Poems come to mind. Really good. Um, and uh, summarizing content. Uh, but dollars and cents, who knows? But speaking of value, let's let's step back. My favorite topic is about any technology change is who actually makes money. So companies, do companies already make money deploying AI tools is the question you raised. I'm raising the question in if you look at the whole end-to-end world about everybody doing AI, everybody claims to do AI, who actually started making money. So interestingly enough, the LLM vendors like OpenAI and others don't make money. If you think about it, there are yeah. 500,000 open source models out there, thousands of pri- proprietary ones. Right now, most private models are charging $20 a month. But if you're a major Microsoft customer, you get Copilot for free, meaning you get ChatGPT for Pro and whatever is the next layer is going to be for free for now. So it's hard to argue that LLM vendors make money, but they they are sort of the essence, the linchpin in value creation, right? Uh, it reminds me of the early internet days where mm-hmm. nobody that were, I mean, the end users, Internet was free, and all the value creations somehow materialized other ways, and we'll come back to that. Um, and, and they're likely going to be paywalls, and we're already seeing them for Pro and Ultra and Executive Platinum levels of, of LLMs. <laughs> but is that really used by you and me? Or even for most businesses, is an average uh, mid-sized company, manufacturing company, Tier 3 automotive manufacturer, are they going to use Ultra Pro level uh, LLMs? Unlikely. So they'll, they'll tap into the freemium segment so somebody has to make money and somebody gets to get paid so who makes money right now we all know it compute yeah running these you know, obviously running inference or running in general training or inference models on on hyperscalers azure aws gcp they certainly make money i call it the ai rent they get paid there are no discounts <laughs> you're never getting a special hey let's why don't you try out um <laughs> Uh, inference for a while, it will give you free. There's no such thing. So uh, hyperscalers get paid. Hardware gets paid. In, yeah. There are no free NVIDIA H100 chips out there. I'm not aware of them. So <laughs> NV- or they don't even discount this. Hey, we're running a special. It's it's a year-end sale. No such thing, right? So so hardware gets paid. Even the hyperscalers' own chips get will get um, uh, full value. And, and anybody who makes GPUs or specialized chips, TPUs, will make money. Um Companies, who knows? Like we don't know if the customer, the business customers, are making money yet with uh, uh, generative AI. There are many stories out there. So um, whether you know around customer service or or other areas where we've seen back office, some some of the uh, um, AI driven automations, maybe maybe that's there. Investors, well, public company investors have made money, so public stocks mm-hmm. have been snoring, uh, soaring, not snoring. Um, if you look at Nvidia or Microsoft or others, so so they are, and private AI company valuations have gone up 10x, right? So going from 10 times revenue to probably 100 more, who knows? Um, consumers likely will not pay. They may not question whether they get value. A lot of the applications for consumers are very entertainment centric. Um, 
and they're like unlikely they're going to pay for anything. So they'll probably be a product again, like in the internet days. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of cons- a lot of the consumer payment will come through advertising. So this is really interesting to watch this because at the end of the day, the way I look at the business to business to business to business to consumer value chain. All the payment ultimately comes from consumers. So how they how the consumers will end up paying is going to be probably paying more for the same kind of services. So the same we went from free internet to dial up at nine bucks a month to now hundred bucks a month for internet. It created a global market for you know I don't know a billion times hundred bucks a month. It does add up, right? So so that pays for the internet. Similarly, very likely you're going to see the same monetization. Consumers will pay it, maybe a rent, but they may also be. Uh, products of 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 these LLMs through targeting ads and otherwise. So that's sort of you know obviously key focus for me. I, I, I love figuring out <laughs> as a recovering economist how how this all works. But that's that's monetization, AI monetization. How do you think about this? I agree with you that I think right now the monetization model is evolving and it's it's on the fight. It's not clear who will capture the value, and <clears throat> I see that. Um, you have to pay the piper. So hardware and the hyperscaler will get paid. And then the question is where the value division happen above it. And I agree with you that uh, some areas are emerging super interesting. And people usually pay for premium. So I expect that while the vanilla model will be available for all of us, uh, when we want to do more with the model, have more precision, more capability, that might be a freemium market. Also, what I see more and more emerging is what people build on the top of the LLMs, whether it's apps or some special capabilities, which will come then to when do we go beyond content creation? Because content creation is only creating so much value. So it's an interesting question that will people pay when AI can do things, when agency is coming up? I mean, it's super interesting if I'm looking at research where right now OpenAI start to optimize its model for agent support, where right now research is coming up that the answer is not better LLM, larger models, but maybe multiple agents trying to solve things and see what works, how to optimize that cycle. I don't know. What do you see? You know, it's interesting, uh, paying for stuff. So so it, you and I slightly disagree on this. We'll see how this plays out <laughs> on freemium, how much people will pay. I, you may end up being right. But but it also raises the question, you know, do you have problems for AI to solve that's worth paying for, right? So it's going to be interesting both for businesses and for us as consumers. Like, do we have a big enough problem? Maybe doing homework for a deadline that may get us through college, to college is worth paying for. So there are going to be consumer <laughs> examples, I'm sure. Uh, but ultimately, it actually brings up the question is, how do we make sure AI actually does stuff? Yeah. So it's interesting. We all remember uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Lazy GPT. And if anybody watches this years from now, it's not going to understand what that was. But Lazy GPT was... For a while, GPT actually you know created stuff. He asked it you know to write a Shakespearean uh, sonnet in a, you know about you know business work. It could do that, and now for a couple of weeks, it actually acted lazy and said, "Well, this is how you would write a sonnet, and this is how it would work." Right, so so it got got weird, but it reminded you that you we all got used to even in content creation of of GPT actually creating stuff, and that's the expectation. That's the norm is it should do stuff, and. Um, and beyond content creation, when it becomes agents, like you expect it to perform stuff. Yeah. So in, in in consumer life, all my all my bills and data and receipts, everything is on my computer. 
I should be able to tell a computer, do my taxes. There's nothing I need to provide. It knows all the tax code. It knows all my receipts. It knows how I filed all my taxes, all my taxes. But it doesn't do that. There's no application just yet for that. Um, for a variety of reasons, we'll, we'll get into in the future about context windows and stuff. Um, but but that's sort of what you want. That should be the norm. AI should do stuff for you. Same with business and the same is true with businesses. You have all your business transactions. Most companies, that's everything is digital. You should be able to have AI handle incoming customer complaints, figure out how to solve them, how we solved them in the past, what was the best way, when was the customer happy about it, mm-hmm. and instruct the underlying computer systems to perform the best way to handle that complaint, run through a variety of ERP and CRM and, and customer success systems. That should be the norm versus you doing point fixes um, in, in your processes. So that, that I think should, should be the norm and that will be the norm. And, um, and I'm, I'm all a fan of, of autonomous enterprises. I was a fan of autonomous enterprises when they were DAOs in the blockchain days, right? So I think, I think we're going to get closer to it, but we should hold that standard high up versus yeah. just making, you know, making it create meeting summaries or, or poems or, <laughs> or things like that. Um, and and I th- there's even view out there that ERP will be gone in 10 years because AI can construct the processes on the fly. The best way we can handle certain things and understands all the connections, the APIs to underlying systems. So I'm really, really bullish about... Uh, Making GPT do stuff, and and um, but that raises the question: What if it does stuff wrong? <laughs> Absolutely, and um, I think even if you think about making GPT do stuff, probably it's not going to be just GPT. I mean, one thing we see right now in the marketplace is that other players that are well established in the market that used to focus on workflow management or automation, now you start to connect the dots between hey, how can we bring together content creation? How can we bring together decision-making? How can we bring together closing the action loop, closing the last mile? And that's where I expect the most improvement in 2024. But you raised a really good question. Now that we trust AI not just to come up with an answer or a recommendation or a poem, but actually close that loop, what could happen? And just this week came out a study that is not actually reassuring. It was a joint collaboration between Stanford, Northeastern, Georgia Institute of Tech. And what they did, they did a war simulation. And the goal was to negotiate and manage the conflict between eight different countries, fictional countries, and see how GPDs could find a way to negotiate. And the simulation ended with a nuclear strike. And when they asked Komoda why they chose that course of action, the answer was, well, that was the best way to establish long-term peace. So I'm really happy right now that GPTs are creating content <laughs> and they do not have the ability to execute. And I think that will lead to a significant shift in our approach to regulation and legislation. I mean, just right now, more than 42 states have actually well over 400 AI-related regulation in, in the books. And um, uh, that is uh, reassuring in one way because I think, I think our legislative is a lot more aware of potential risk 
a lot more about than we were at social media when we were kind of late to wake up and see should we put some guardrails around it. On the other hand, there are some concerning historical learnings, for example, from Europe. When Europe many times in the past overregulated technology and it caused them technology and innovation leadership. So I think in this in these discussions, whenever we see new regulation, it would be interesting to see are we walking the line? Are we finding the right balance by claiming and, and supporting innovation leadership, which we want to do, but also putting the right guardrails so the best way to, avoid, to, to achieve world peace is not a nuclear strike. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, we've seen that. I mean, blockchain was a good example. The first thing countries go to is regulation, which doesn't actually help the technology development. Technology should come to a point where it actually solves these issues. And and, and and one of the ways, and there are multiple things I know we are passionate about. One is regs. I'll talk about regs, and I know you talk about mini LLMs. Um, but one of the, like, unless you live under the rock, if you focus on AI and you don't know what regs are, uh, obviously you're under the rock, but it's what's called retrieval augmented um, uh, generation. And, and it's a relatively old concept in AI days, like 2020. But the idea is then when you prompt an AI, let's say GPT for this conversation, when you prompt GPT to perform a task or answer a great content, it would be super useful for that AI not to rely on just its generic knowledge in the training set, but you actually provide the right components for that answer. So you're asking it to perform an analysis on a certain industry. If you could provide the data to you in that to use in an analysis that's current, that's comparable, maybe some benchmark data, it will give you a better answer, right? And and this is the concept of RAG is you actually find you actually prepare the right kind of data and even the right kind of questions and a search components so so you prompt better. But it's different. Regs are different from prompt engineering. It's different from fine-tuning. So we will actually have a separate episode to talk about reg, prompt engineering, fine-tuning, more likely in terms. What does it mean if, if, you are, if you are trying to deploy these technologies? You're not a data scientist, right? But it does reduce hallucinations. It does reduce um, uh, mistakes in broad terms. And it also, very importantly, from value perspective, reduce your cost of compute, which is the rent you pay to your hyperscalers, right? So, and it's a it's a big deal because you could put all the data you ever need, including the current data, give it to the GPT, assuming your context window can handle it. It's a massive cost to to use that and 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 use that information and process it by the GP for the large language model because it would be uh it would run. A, a, uh, on large, you know, hyperscaler uh, compute models. So, so it's a very exciting space. It's one way you can make uh, make sure that uh, LLMs don't make so many mistakes. And there are other ways. So, so Rag is one way. We'll come back to this in a future episode. But I know another way is uh, RPOD. You love smaller and specialized LLMs. What's that all about? Well, for me, these two things are related. If you think about any enterprise application beyond creating exciting pictures for your PowerPoint or a nice poem to entertain your team, uh, you need to grant these models. Because what, what we find is, is a very interesting uh, challenge. These pre-trained models demo very well. Because when you have a question, a generic question, it can give you an immediate answer. And it's so easy to confuse fluency with knowledge and fluency with accuracy. 
And uh, for everyday use cases, receipt generation, trip planning, that's good enough. For a specific enterprise use case, it's very important that, as you said, we bring in specific data from the enterprise that we want decisions uh, or analysis to be done to, as well as to make sure that we ensure somehow the accuracy of these models. This is why RAG is very important. Um, and there is always a trade-off. There is a trade-off between how much we can lean in and leverage the underlying language model to give us better reasoning, better answers, or how much we can get a quick and accurate solution. So yes, as you said, I'm a big fan of maybe smaller models that are developed for specific purposes. And there's right now a lot of emerging research that's definitely a key focus area about models that uh, represent different part of knowledge base. And how can we bring them together? How can we find and approach a question from different perspective to find the right answer? Um, so there's a huge emergence between uh, models that represent multiple expertise, linking it to a grounding knowledge to RAG, and how to optimize all this to make it an enterprise solution. So I'm very excited because I think we should dedicate a full session on that because that's probably the number one path most enterprises walk on, and that's not a simple one. So I would love to simplify it to understand what trade-off decisions worth making. All right, maybe spend uh, an episode on going through the 500,000 specialized LLMs on <laughs> hugging face <laughs> or not. Uh, but all of this raises a question, right? It's like, how do you learn all this stuff? And de <laughs> depending on your role in the company, uh, how do you become a better AI leader, mm. leader at all levels, right? Um, and and we all have to go through reskilling. You know, my brother and I had this challenge. Let's take an AI course every week. And we all have to do this, even though we spend X number of years in tech. Um, and, it, you know, we need to learn about this to be a better AI-enabled employee, how do you perform your role better, your job better? Because you're going to be up against other people that will know how to use this technology better. And that's your competition. Uh, it's not the tool that competition. Your competition is the person next to you that's going to be good, savvy at this. The other is how do you become a business savvy data scientist? I mean, data, this, this, all of this AI change is, is, a, is a boon for data scientists. They are finally at the fore in businesses. Oftentimes, they don't understand business itself. And they don't understand, you know, if you ask them a question, okay, design an optimal um, order, order management process with AI for us, it's, it's not a language they're used to. So how do you do that? And all of us, how do we become better leaders in a workforce that's going to have a lot of AI? Um, and, and how do we create the right performance structure? How do we make sure that we know who, who's performing better, even when everybody has access to, uh, uh, to the world's knowledge in so many weeks? So we'll talk about this becoming a better AI leader in the very next episode, or so we think. And, um, and what we'd love to hear is what's top of mind for you? What should we talk about as we take this collaboration off, off the ground? And please leave us a comment and subscribe. And with that, Philadelphia is checking out. And so is San Diego. See you next time.